All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 38. Um, we are in the last three weeks of this series on Job. We will uh, cover God speaking part one, and then part two will be next week, and then we'll see the, the conclusion of things in Job uh, a couple of weeks from now. Um, just to catch us up to where we are, we, we didn't take time to listen to Elihu's argument. He was the, the last one to speak. You remember we, we talked about Job and he closed out his time by uh, defending his innocence. And, and we talked about how we have allowed the word legalism to so transform us, to so inhibit us that we can't even celebrate at all any sort of righteousness. Like that we being obedient is something that is to be trivialized. And it shouldn't be at all. In fact, there is a balance here. Remember, true legalism is for you to think that your actions can save you. Let's get this straight so there'd be no confusion. Can you do anything to save yourself and make, make God love you? No. Thank you, Eugene. I'm glad there was one quasi-Baptist in here. So, uh, so I appreciate that that is true. I am thankful that that is true because I can tell you that if it's left to me and my own devices, I am utterly hell-bent. I can't make it. However, however, is obedience an epithet? Is it a dirty religious word? No. Thank you, Alyssa. I know you are quasi-Baptist. I appreciate that. Um, no, obedience is not a dirty word. Christ said, if you love me, you will do what? Charge everybody with legalism, right? Call everybody a Pharisee the moment they bring up devotions or accountability or other dirty religious words. No, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if we trace that back, the two greatest are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, which is worship, and to love our neighbors ourselves, which is word and deed ministry. Now, lest we get too far, how many of you could say, I love the Lord my God with all, every ounce of my heart, soul, and mind? I, I never get this wrong. Well, none of us could say that. But here's the thing in Christ, in union with Christ, you are before the throne of God what you will be. Now, our lives, our sanctification process is us discovering more and more and more, growing further into the image of Christ and learning more and more what that's about, only to be perfected and glorified when he comes again, which is the beauty of the table we have before us. And so we need to be very, very careful that we don't try to resolve certain tensions and allow ourselves to be rendered foolish by the ways of the world and suggest that being obedient is a bad thing. How many of you as parents are teaching your kids obedience is just a terrible idea? You being disobedient is far more Christ-like and, and you're going to receive so much more grace if you don't ever do anything I ask you to do. Is that what you're teaching your children? Well, God didn't teach us that either. It's as foolish a notion for him as it is for us. Again, you can't get the cart before the horse. Um, it, you have to keep it in right perspective that your obedience is part of the sanctification process, not the justification process. So you can't save yourself through your deeds, but you do grow through your obedience to appreciate who God is, what Christ has done for you, and what is the meaning of life. As I've said many times over, 
and I, I won't stop saying it because I think it's an important thing to say. You have no idea how you are crippling yourself one year from now by your lack of devotion today, your lack of prayer today, your lack of worship, your lack of service. You have no idea what you are keeping yourself from and how you are not growing by your disobedience today. You, we always, it's our culture, we think, I'll catch up in the curve. No, you won't. You won't catch up in the curve. And I, let me prove it real quick. How many of you in January have embarked on the Read Through the Bible in a Year program? Come on. That's okay. Show your hands. Not many of you. Okay. Now, of the, keep your hands up. Of those who started it, how many of you finished? Oh, the hands dropped. See, you can't catch up in the curve. You died at Leviticus or Numbers. I don't know where you fell out in the wilderness, but you just didn't make it. Because the read through the Bible in a year, once you train, it's four chapters a day. Once you miss a couple of days, you're, now you're 12 chapters behind. You're train wrecked. Now, that's a kind of a, an interesting example, but I think it's also indicative of the rest of our Christian life. We do it everywhere else as well. We don't catch up. We let it go. We just keep moving. It's part of who we are. My point is this, what we saw in Job is that Job was able to say, and he was not doing it in a way that was arrogant or something that we should belittle him on, but would that we could all say, I have kept myself from these things. I have not lusted after these folks. I have not taken my neighbor's wife. I have not mistreated the poor. I have not mistreated those who work for me. Why can't we say that? Why is that not a good thing for us to say, I've loved my family well? All the things that Job said before his words were ended, we should be able to say in union with Christ as the, as the Spirit works in us, we should desire the good things instead of all the time allowing ourselves to, as C.S. Lewis says, eat mud pies while there's this beautiful banquet table behind us with all of this lovely and wonderful food, and we just ignore it. And so Job is teaching us that there is, there is a tremendous dialectical tension. There are ways in which we know we are to behave, and then there's questions that we're still going to have regardless, right? So do you have to have every one of your theological questions answered before you're obedient to God? And if so, where does it say that in the Bible? Nowhere. But so many of us, that's kind of the way we work. We, we, we say, I'll, I'll, you know, as I learn more things, as I learn certain things, I'll, I'll catch up. I'll do more. I'll get better. It's, it's always in the future. It's never today. We have no sense of urgency, no sense of unction about us, to use a great word by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We have no fire that burns within us for holiness and the things of God. We're very casual. We need to wrestle with that. We need to be struck by that. Job was not casual about these things. My hope is that what you have seen in him is a man who was unwilling to let go of what he knew. He knew something was not right. He didn't quite have it all figured out. His theology was not perfect, but he himself wrestled with the right things and he longed to hear from the Lord. He didn't want to hear from his friends anymore. And you don't want to hear from this young guy, Elihu, who shows up and basically exhausts human wisdom over four or five chapters 
Um, and it's interesting, I must confess, Calvin thought that Elihu was probably right in some respects, that maybe he was preparing the way of the Lord. I thought the same thing the first time I read it, which made me feel pretty good about myself because me and Calvin had a similar thought, right? Well, as I've studied it, I, don't, I no longer agree with that. I think Elihu was just rehashing the same old argument, proving the Ecclesiastes reality that there really is nothing new under the sun. You can repackage it. You can spin it a different way. You can give it certain credence from various authors, and it won't change the fact that it just isn't true. The world is not mechanistic. The Lord is not bound to the retributive principle. He is free to give and take away as he pleases. But here's the good news. The Lord gives and takes away according to his attributes, which we must remember from Exodus 34, 5, and 6. He is long-suffering. He is steadfast in love. He is faithful. He is forgiving. He is just. He is good. So if he gives and if he takes away, ultimately it is for the greater good, even if we can't see it in the moment. And some of you may say, but how long, O Lord? Well, you are in legion with the psalmist. You are in legion with Job. You are in legion with every person of God who's ever suffered for more than one second. And is God bound to answer you by a certain time table? No, he is not. And while we don't necessarily find that comforting, but he always answers when it is best for us to hear so that we can hear and respond appropriately. Amen? And so many of us, it's hard to see when you're in the middle of the whirlwind. And there's so many of us who it's just we're chomping at the bit for resolution. And I understand. Trust me, I do. There's many things. My wife can tell you I am someone who chomps at the bit all the time about various things. And I I try to demand of God, but he is always patient and slow to answer because he knows that if I get what I demand, suddenly I will think that I have the ability to control him, and you would too. So God in his grace does not allow us to control him, but instead works according to his attributes, not bound by any principle in this world, not bound by any law other than himself. And because he is good, we should say to that, amen. So Job has exhausted what he's got to say. The friends have said all there is to say. Elihu shows there's nothing new under the sun. And lo and behold, the Lord is now going to speak. How gracious is our God that he would condescend to speak directly to Job, to speak directly to us, that he would condescend in the person and work of Christ to speak to our greatest and deepest of needs and continue to do that as he has given power to the Spirit for the ongoing work of the ministry of his glory. The Holy Spirit something that we, we're not real comfortable with because he kind of does what he wants to do. We don't like to talk about him a whole lot because he could get loose, right? As if we could control him by not talking about him. All right, so the, the first thing that we have to wrestle with is, is, I think, a term, much like legalism, that I think has been twisted and distorted and has the wrong connotation when we hear it. So let me ask you, and it, you can participate. It's okay. How do you define the word theology? What does that word mean? 
Somebody, anybody. Study of God. Right. That's what most people would say. That's actually wrong. Biblically, completely and utterly wrong. In the sense, not hold tight, in the, in the sense that it is head knowledge only, which is how most of us, if we're confessional, think about theology. Let me illustrate. Most people, if I were to, if I were to email you and say, hey, um, uh, let me pick somebody that won't be hurt by what I'm about to say. Uh, Josh. <laughs> hey, Josh, uh, I'm going to, I, I want to, I just want to talk theology, man. So would you, would you be interested in coming over and hanging out? Now, Josh might would, because he's weird and, and knows me well enough to know what I would actually mean by that. But most of you, if that's my invitation to you and you have anything else that you can do and get out of it, you're going to do that right? Let's just be honest. Like, none of us get real excited when, we, when someone calls and says, hey, you want to get together and just chat about theology? Maybe talk about predestination or something? Play with G.I. Joes? Um, so, so it's, it's got a negative connotation to it. Consider that just for a second, that this word theology, the study of God, has for most of you a negative connotation. Let that just sink in for a second. That you growing in knowledge of God could be something negative. Because it's going to make you more of an egghead. It's going to make you puffed up. It's going to make you throw around terms that nobody understands. Is that what theology should do to us? The more that we learn about God, should it make us less accessible in a fallen world? Should it make us less able to engage a fallen world? To, to learn more about God should make us less loving no, that can't be true. Theology is not just the study of God, but the livedness of what we know of God. It is both knowledge that leads to action, not just merely knowledge. If it doesn't lead to action, you have not done theology. You've done ivory towerism. So any time you hear the term theology, I want you to wrestle with what it does in your heart and soul. And if it brings up something negative, ask the question, why? Why do I see this as bad? Because I can guarantee if we had a Sunday school class where we said, we're, gonna, we're just going to talk theology, maybe two of you would sign up for it. Which is a travesty to me. It's a travesty that we re are repulsed by and repelled by a term that is actually life-giving to us and meaningful and defines us and teaches us how we live. How can you live if you don't know who God is? How can you worship if you don't know who he is? How can you trust him? How will you pray if you don't know who you're talking to? So we need to wrestle with that. And what we're going to see this morning is that God is going to say something to Job, and Job has actually evidenced a willingness to wrestle and to see it come to life in a way that we could learn from. Listen to what John H. Walton, Old Testament scholar, says uh, of these passages. He says, Job and his friends think that they know how the cosmos is ordered. Let me remind you, if you remember from the previous sermons, every one of them had some sort of creation aspect to their argument, didn't they? Every one of them wanted to point to creation and say, see, this is how the world works. 
This is how the world works. And I, I look at creation. If you try to grow certain plants in tepid waters, what do they do? They die. So that's how God works. Really? Okay. So, so here Walton is, is pointing out they've oversimplified. Listen, Job and his friends think that they know how the cosmos is ordered, the retribution principle with justice as the foundation. God will eventually demonstrate that their model is flawed. God's perspective on the foundation of the cosmos is based on causes, all of which were instigated by him, not on effects which humans experience. There is no foundational principle that runs the cosmos. The cosmos runs by God's continuous and ongoing activity. It is dynamic because he is dynamic. This is why he acts according to circumstance and not by a rigid set of strictures. Now, again, I want to qualify. The, the, his attributes determine these things, not anything outside of himself. So it's not a hodgepodge. It's not up for grabs. It is all based on, he doesn't act counter to his faithfulness. He doesn't act counter to his graciousness or his mercy. Everything he does is in line with exactly who he is. And for us, that is good news indeed. Because if God in any way, shape, or form is malevolent and he created all this, what hope do you have? The answer is none. If he is not exactly who Exodus 34 says he is in everything else evidences, we are in trouble. And you can get angry about that and you can shake your fist and you can try to make him something that he's not. And making him something that he's not is to make you something that you're not and that you can never become. As, you, as God goes, so go you. And that's important for us to remember as we talk about creation. If you would, turn with me to the text. We'll start with the first three verses. This is God's invitation. God has finally shown up. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, here's what's interesting as we walk through this. This, the, the, the word in Hebrew for the Lord is different here than it has been throughout Job. And the word that is used for him here is Yahweh. Now, why is that important? Because it's the covenant name of the Lord. It means in using that term, and, and, and that term showing up here, it means that Job has not been forgotten nor forsaken. That the covenant Lord has heard every word that has come from his mouth. Notice what it says, and the Lord answered Job. So the Lord has been present the entire time. He's been listening. He knows what has been said. In great wisdom, he is going to respond. But he is the covenant Lord who has not forsaken his creation, not even for a moment, even though it has felt like for Job an eternity on the trash heap. And so God who is the covenant Lord, is coming near. And it says that he speaks out of the whirlwind. Now, here's a, here's a theological term for you that you may be familiar with and you should be familiar with. It's called theophany. And the term theophany just means something that evidences the presence of the Lord. An example of this would be the burning bush. That was a theophany. It, it let Moses know that the Lord was present. The, the pillar uh, of, of cloud by day and fire by night, that was a theophany. That was something that represented God's presence and nearness. Jesus Christ is the greatest theophany. 
the evidence that the Lord came near to his people and displayed all of his attributes and his glory so that we would know that he loves us. So, even though it is a whirlwind, which some of you may say, that would be pretty terrifying, well, Job and those guys needed to know that what they were dealing with was not some small G God, but the capital G Yahweh. And so he's speaking from the whirlwind, and he is answering Job, and he begins by saying, and this is very interesting and important for us, he's basically asking, who is it that has basically made it so that no one could understand? Who is it that has so muddied the water, who has so darkened the counsel of creation, the thing that should have helped you understand what is going on? Who is it that has, that has basically rendered wisdom and understanding opaque? And it's in the singular, so he's talking specifically to Job and not everybody present. And so he says, you need to dress for action like a man. Now, why, why would he say that? Well, because... To wrestle with the things of God takes work. It takes, it takes effort. And what he's basically saying is take your tunic and tuck it up so that you can get some work done. We're about to do some serious work here, Job. And you will need to dress for action like a man. Theology is not something that you, you just do flat-footed. It is a very interactive process, Right? How many of you have, have read something in the scriptures about God and then in life experience just, just ran into a brick wall and thought, how, how can both be true? If God longs to bless his people, then why do I feel like I am being tortured? We all have probably found ourselves near a place of that kind. And it takes work, doesn't it? It takes work to, to, to wrestle with that theology, to wrestle with that truth. If, if God's attributes are these, why do I feel forsaken? And the beautiful thing about God is, is he doesn't just say to you, shut up and take it. No, he draws near. He draws near through his church, the communion of the saints. He draws near through the means of grace. He draws near through the person and work of Christ. He draws near through his word. He draws near through creation to speak to you, to love you, to care for us all. If he were the God that said, shut up and take it, I don't know that we would worship him for long. He's not saying to Job, shut up and take it. He's saying, you have gotten some things wrong and now we're going to work to get them right so that you can know exactly who I am. And he's going to restore Job. And that's the beautiful part of the story. He's going, to, he's going to make Job into something that Job could have never become on his own. He's going to do work with Job to sanctify him, to, to, to break away certain hard edges, to take away certain things that Job thought. See, Job had this idea about God that basically you just want to keep him appeased so he stays at the back of the universe. I mean, if you have a retribution principle view of, of the world and of God, you just want to keep him satisfied so he doesn't show up because usually that means that when he shows up in a mechanistic world that it's to, to destroy things. 
And so remember, God just, I mean, Job just tried to maybe do double, double sacrifice just so the kids wouldn't get in trouble. And he just, he was more concerned with keeping God at bay. And God blew his life apart so that finally at last, Job would respect and love that this is the God who comes near. And he does it differently for each of us. And we don't get to determine how it's going to be and what day it comes on. And we don't get to determine the length of time. But what we do know is that he is good and that he will be faithful and he will see us through until the end. Listen to what John Hartley, uh, Old Testament scholar, says of this passage. He says, amazingly, Yahweh ignores Job's complaints and avoids making a direct response to his avowal of innocence. And contrary to the friend's expectations, he does not reprove Job for some wrongdoing. Rather, he addresses Job like a teacher instructing a student who fails to understand an important matter, for he wishes to open up for him new ways of understanding the created order and his wise care of that order. Did you hear what? That said, this is God showing up to teach Job something that he could never learn on his own. How might that change our perspective with the suffering that we endure? How might we begin to look for something different in our suffering if we were to recognize that it is in part God using something to teach us something that we could learn under no other circumstance? Because as we are uniquely created, we all are uniquely flawed as well. My own testimony speaks to that. There was no way, no way I become a Christian without him moving in a, a certain way. I didn't demand that. I didn't determine that. He did. But he was willing to do it. Not everybody comes the same way. Susan has known that God has loved her every day she's been alive. Me? No. Not so much. Not so much. He didn't have to move in Susan's life the same way he has mine. He, but he chooses to condescend. He chooses to do, he's not bound. It's not, because think about it. Think about it. This is really important given the diversity of humanity. If God could only come to you in one way, if, if he was bound to, to only work in certain ways, then there would be certain people who'd be condemned to hell. There's just no other way. There's no, other, no, other, no way to reach them. Now, let me qualify for those of you who have read The Shack and are thinking, uh-oh, Cameron just said that God could come as a large black woman because we can't handle the, no, that's not, he does not amalgamate himself to suit our neurosis. He condescends to save his people. That's different. He doesn't become something wholly other. He's always who he is. He is unchanging. But the beautiful thing is that he can reach us through a number of means that we can't even begin to comprehend. That he would take a radical anti-postmodern theist and use his postmodern faith deconstruction group to make him a Christian. The man who set out to, to absolutely destroy the faith of seven other men actually became the source of a small revival in that group and beyond. That's Praise God. Praise God that he uses so many different ways to reach his people. He's so creative and he's not utilitarian and he's not bound to anything that we understand. So my question for you is how do you wrestle with the things of God? Like where, where do you create space to deal with the things of God? Because if you're, if you're not, 
If you're not doing some kind of work here, then I don't know how you're growing. And, and, and I've mentioned this before. I'm not sure I've ever done it from here, but I, I know I've talked about it. As you grow, your, your um, Bible study methods, your, uh, the way that you do this has got to evolve and change as well. Now, no disrespect for the daily bread. I think it's a wonderful uh, thing, but it cannot be your main diet. It just can't. Not over the long haul. At some point, you, you have to read through the whole of Scripture. If Scripture is the revelation of who God is, and you've never read from Genesis to Revelation in some form or fashion, you don't know who God is. Not in full. You can't. Does that mean you've got to memorize all of it? No. But at some point, if this reveals who he is, you can't just stick to the easy parts because he's not just the God of the easy parts, now is he? It is incumbent upon us to be a people of the book. Now, there's options. For those of you who think trying to read through the Bible in a year is way too hard, uh, there's a two-year option. I'm sure there's a three-year option. I'm sure somebody came up with a four-year plan, maybe even a 10-year plan. I, I don't necessarily care, but my point to you is this. We must also mature in the way that we do theology. In the way, does that mean we become more and more eggheadish about it? No. In fact, if you're not growing, if it's not leading to you serving others more, it's failing to do its work in your life. If you're not growing in your love for your neighbor out of your time of doing work, doing theology, it is, it's stillborn. It is not going to lead you where you need to go. The other question I have for you is, is this, and you can't just yell out the answer, but I want you to think about it. What has most shaped your theology? How you view God and live that out? What has most shaped it? That's worthy of you considering this day and asking the question, is, should that really be the thing that shapes it? Is that the most accurate way for my understanding of who God is to be shaped? As much as I love any number of people who have written books and speak regularly, I don't think our theology should be primarily shaped by how somebody else interprets this. We should look at it for ourselves. We should be Bereans, all of us, not just some of us. And as you mature, the whole church matures. Then as a church, we can do more than we could ever do instead of always having to deal with spilt milk instead of people who are dining on meat. And so, ask yourself that at some point today. Ask the Spirit to show you what has most shaped your theology and your views of who God is. Now, let's turn to the longer part of the text. There's no way for us to cover this exhaustively, so I'm going to hit some high notes as I go along the way. I encourage you to take some time to read through and study it for yourself, but here we're going to see a wonderful example of how God frequently uses creation to reveal something about himself. And this is good for us. It's good for you to, as a, as a potential methodology to look at the world, to develop a worldview and to consider the things that God has made and what it teaches us about him. So I will pause along the way. There's, I don't want to read all the way through it uh, and make a few comments as we go. Listen to what God, as he begins to teach Job and us as well. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were, what were its bases sunk? 
or who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So here he's saying, he's beginning with how the world is structured. And he's asking Job, all right, Job, you have been commenting on the inner workings of the heaven you cannot see, the throne room into which it is opaque. You don't know what's going on in there. You've made all kind of comments about that. Well, let's turn to something that you can see, and let me ask you a few questions. Let's begin with how the world is structured. Surely you know. And then he goes on. Or who shut in the sea with doors, or when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here you shall, here, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So God here is saying that there is no other cosmic force. Again, in this culture, the sea was seen as a, an instrument of chaos. And the other ancient Near Eastern gods often had ideas about how the sea was a, a counter or yin-yang type deal between good and evil. Now God says, I'm the one who told the sea how far it could go. I am the one who brought it forth from the womb. What does that tell you about the sea as a counterforce? It is under the sovereignty of God. The very thing that most people believe to be this counterforce, God says, no, it is no counterforce at all. I gave birth to it and I determined how far it would go. And he goes on. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it may take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. So here God is speaking to the fact that he is just. Creation evidences his justice. The wicked will not go unpunished. They do not do as they please. They ultimately are limited. Just think about it. If the sea is limited, then how much more the wicked? Now, I know that that seems an odd thing to say as we see lots of horrible things happening in our world. And there's a host of questions that I have, as I'm sure you do. How in the world do we explain these things? But God says, here's the thing you can trust. Just as I have controlled the sea, I control the wicked. And they will only go as far as I let them go. And that, while it brings tons of questions, also is a comfort to us. Because I don't know if you've read much about massive wicked things such as Nazi Germany's um, policy to exterminate an entire group of people. If you know anything about Stalin or if you know anything about any number of horrific dictators, their bloodlust is unsatiated. And if it weren't for God's controlling hand, they would not have stopped. If it weren't for his sovereign intervention, there would be no world as we know it now. And so he is saying, Job, I have structured the world in wisdom. I have, I have told the cosmic forces they are under my sovereign control, as are the wicked. So right straight away, God is displaying, even through creation, that he is sovereign over all things and that even some of their questions have been foolish. 
Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this. Now remember, Job many times over said, I wish that I could die. I wish that I could go into the gates of death. And remember that, that psalm on wisdom from Job 28 and how it said that, that even, even the deep confesses wisdom cannot be found here. It is only the Lord who looks over the whole of the earth, who understands the entirety of how things work. So there's great wisdom in all of creation. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail that, which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Even creation serves the purposes of the Lord and when he determines that he, um, he is at war with the wicked. He calls for them uh, to do his bidding. We don't. How many of you have ever been in the midst of a, a tornado or a hurricane? Have you ever felt more small? Have you ever felt like you could just be rent and, and, and twisted and blown apart? The Lord says, I control those things. I bring them to pass at my decision-making in wisdom and justice. He goes on to say, Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and the way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Here, God is saying, I am not a utilitarian God. How many of you who do any kind of farming like to irrigate and funnel water to arid land? You just funnel it away from the good land and give it to the desolate waste places. Well, the Lord has so much of it that he can do both. He is not utilitarian. He just does what he does out of a sense of beauty and joy. And here's good news. How many of you have found yourself in a desolate or a waste place? The Lord can bring rain even there, which means he can bring comfort to his people no matter where they are. Has the rain of Father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Remember, in this culture, most people would have uh, known where to go by guiding themselves by the stars. See, the Lord says, I, even I, control and help you to navigate and find out, find out where it is that you need to go. He goes on. Can you lift up the voice of the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? So who do we pray to when drought comes? Who, who can actually provide in a season of drought? And how many times in scripture do we see again and again the Lord be faithful to provide for his people all that they have needed even in a time of massive drought? 
And he goes on. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thickets who provide for ravens its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Let me pause here. Now he's getting into the animal kingdom. He's actually told Job all there is to know about the earth and the heavens and the sea. And now he's turning to the animal kingdom and he's going to walk Job through a variety of animals, both domesticated and undomesticated, who dwell in, in places that are known and places that are unknown. Now, I'm not going to read all of chapter 39. I'll let you read that for yourself. But what he's doing is he's showing Job that I intricately and extravagantly care for all of creation. From the ostrich who is dumb and you have declared to be your brother. Remember Job said he is the brother of jackals and ostriches. The ostrich who would stomp its young to death if left to its own devices, I even care for and make sure that the ostrich continues in my creation. I care for it all. And I do so in extravagant and beautiful ways. And remember Psalm 8. Psalm 8 has been such a critical text for us through this series of Job. Remember how Job twisted it twice? And here again, it reminds us, who is the crown jewel of creation? Not the center of creation, but the crown jewel. We are God's children. And if he cares this much for ravens, lions, ostriches, donkeys, waste places, how much more will he care for you, the crown jewel of his creation? How much more will he provide all that you truly need eternally See, this is where we got to be careful to make a distinction because we are entitled. We just are in our culture. And we demand things on our timetable. We think we're ready for things when we're really not ready for things. And we think we're wiser than we truly are. And we think that we ought to be able to hold God hostage and tell him what he ought to do. And fortunately for us, he doesn't capitulate to these things. He very graciously and patiently walks with us through these things, doesn't he? And he also grants us Christ. He grants us Christ so that we would not be left to dwell in the desolate places. He grants us Christ as the single greatest answer in wisdom and justice and mercy and grace and faithfulness and forgiveness. See, so saying to Job, if I have cared for all of these things in the way that I've cared for him, as you look on this world, and you wonder how in the world it is that all of these things are held together, then what you need to know is I also hold you together and even in higher esteem and regard. So Job is being taught that he has not been forsaken, that he is not an enemy of the Lord his God, but he, he is in fact a son of God, a, a prized aspect of creation that God has chosen to bestow his glory upon. Listen to what Gustavo Gutierrez says um, of this passage. He says, utility, utility is not the primary reason for God's action. That's really important. God is not in any way, shape, or form truly utilitarian. He is far more extravagant and creative than that. He says, the creative breath of God is inspired by beauty and joy. Job is invited to sing with Yahweh the wonders of creation without forgetting that the source of it all is the free and gratuitous love of God. God does what he does out of his love even when we can't begin to comprehend it in the moment. 
So let me ask you, what, what has creation taught you? As you look at the world, as, as you engage the world from time to time, what has it taught you about God's care and love for you? Has it? Do you have the eyes to see? Do you even take the time to consider the lilies of the field? Do you take the time to consider who is it that provides for all of these things, all of these, these who keeps all of this going? Who keeps the gravity at just the right tuning so that we don't fly off into outer space? Who is it that keeps the tilt of the earth at just the right tilt that if it were a centimeter off this way, we burn to death, a centimeter off that way, we freeze to death? Who is it that does all that? Have you considered? In all this discussion about global warming, can you change the tilt of this world? I'm pretty sure some scientist is going to figure it out at some point, right? Even they, they say, I don't know. So what does creation teach you? Has it taught you to wonder and awe? If it doesn't, it should. Let's turn back to the text and close out verses, uh, chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So Yahweh challenges Job, and he calls Job exactly what he is. He said, you have found fault with me, who is the Almighty, who has just displayed you all of creation. By all means, what is your charge now? And what we see is Job's wonderful humility in that he says, I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken wrongly. I have thought wrongly in my theology. Now that we've done this work, Lord, I will not speak again in this way. See, Job is, is convicted, and Job realizes that what he has and who God is is far greater than anything he has lost. Remember Satan's wager. Take everything away from this man, and he will curse you to your face. Now let me ask you, did Job just curse God to his face? What has Job been given back so far? Nothing. Nothing except the presence of the Lord, which is the thing that he desired all along. Notice Job's response is to the, to the almighty God who has condescended to him, who has revealed to him and shown him what he could not learn of his own accord, that all of creation speaks to God's love for us, that all of creation speaks to how intricate his care for us truly is even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. No question really has been answered. Nothing has been restored, and yet Job repents, showing that he is, in fact, a true man of God. Now, could that be said of us? Could that be said of us that if, if everything were taken from us and all we had was God show up via his book or in Christ, whatever, and speak in this way to us, would we respond in the same way? Or we say, no, 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 I, I need more than that. I need a, you got a lot more explaining to do, God. You got a lot more to explain to me who is finite, who doesn't even begin to understand history. 
Think about, we have a major election coming up. One of the major topics of the election, don't get scared, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Um, I'm voting for Ross Perot, just so you know. Uh, <clears throat> have for years. I think he's dead, which is problematic. Um, one of the major issues in this election is economics. Is, is that fair? Is that fair to say? How many people that are voting do you think truly understand economics at the level necessary to vote in a way that would make sense? And yet, we would say to God, God, you've got a lot more explaining to do. You have a lot more to explain to us, and yet we would not do that with anyone else hardly. We don't require that of hardly anyone else. But we do of God sometimes. Now, I'm not saying God, so clearly has God said don't question him? Did Habakkuk teach us that? No. Has Job taught us you don't question God? No. In fact, it says, no, I'll answer, actually. For you to question actually means you're looking at the world rightly. I love that, and I'll show up and talk to you. But it's in what we demand after the questions have been asked and how we respond to the answer as to whether or not we say it's sufficient or insufficient. Remember the rich young ruler and how he approached God in Christ. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And Christ answered him. And remember, he said, that's great. I, I'm going to do that. And he became one of the apostles, right? Remember the rich young ruler apostle? No, you don't remember him because he walked away. He said, no, I need more than that. That is not sufficient for me, the rich young ruler. I will not do what you're asking. Keep it. And remember, it grieved the Lord our God to watch this young man turn away from salvation, condemning himself to hell forever. So as we close out this chapter, these chapters, what do we learn? Well, number one, that theological understanding requires arduous wrestling with God. If you're not willing to do work, you will not learn about the God who is infinite. It just doesn't, I mean, how would you expect, like, have any understanding of the guy who created the world and who's infinite and you who are finite and not think you've got to wrestle with that some and deal with that and create space for that? Second, creation reveals God's intricate care and sovereign governance and wisdom and justice. Third, we should submit to what God has revealed and be humbled in declaring our theology. Much like Job, when we are confronted with the truth, we need to humbly submit ourselves and be careful. How many of you would confess there's things throughout your life that you've thought about God only to discover you were wrong? My hand is raised way high. I have all kind of crazy stuff that I thought was true of God that isn't, wasn't, and had to be changed and submitted to. Do you have the courage to do that? So this morning, we have an opportunity to respond to a way in which the Lord has revealed himself to us in a way that he has been incredibly gracious to us. We have a, a, an opportunity to, to say, Lord, I trust you. Even in the midst of the wilderness, even between the now and the not yet, I trust that you are good. I trust that that which you have provided for me is truly sufficient we have an opportunity to not respond just to creation, but to Christ. The one who revealed God in full. Remember, the fullness of God's glory was in Christ. And he revealed it to us because he loves us. 
And so in this table, we have the opportunity this morning to say, we humble ourselves and we submit ourselves to what is true of you, God, and true alone. So often, we want Christ to be different than he is. We want him to be something more or less than he really is. But this table says, no, this is what he is. He was a broken body on a cross who bore the totality of our sin, past, present, and future, and the totality of God's wrath due all of that sin. He is spilled blood, spilled in the new covenant so that we could come near to the throne of grace to receive what we need in a time of mercy in a time of grace. See, Christ on that last Passover night, he said so lovingly to his people, he said, I want to give you this until I return again. This is a perpetual thing. I want, you to, I want you to do it until I come the second time so that you would be remembered who I am and who you are in me. And so in this table, he has given us a constant revelation, a means of grace, not that the that this little piece of bread or the gluten-free wafer are gonna become the body of Christ or that the juice is gonna somehow become the blood of Christ. No, we, we don't believe that. But we also don't believe that it's just mere memorial either. We actually believe that it does something to strengthen our faith. You will be in partaking of this table nourished and further sanctified by having done so. You will grow participating in this table as long as you wrestle with it and think about it. Now, having said that, there's a few folks who shouldn't take of this table. And I want to make very clear what, what the fence is. If you don't know Christ, this is not a table for you. It's just, it's, it's, it's not, you don't want to eat unto destruction for yourself. You don't want to curse yourself in this. If you are under church discipline somewhere, you've got to, lay, you've got to leave this where it's at and reconcile that first before you can come and take of the table. If you harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards someone else when you've been given it so freely, you gotta leave this where it's at. This is not going to help you. In fact, it could further harden you. And so don't take of this table if you are unforgiving towards someone else. But let me say this, if you're wrestling, if there's questions that you have, if there's things that you long to know, if there's doubts that you have, your, things that you're maybe unsure of. Now, you must be sure of who you are in Christ, but if you have other doubts, you need this table. If you're trying to work out reconciliation with someone else, you need this table. This is not a table for the perfect. It's a table for the perfected who are wrestling between.